All right, we're going to get started. We have some theological ground to cover today. My husband once shared a quote with me. He said that good leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can withstand. (laughs) So if you were hoping that I would answer, just resolve this tension between faith and works today, let me just disappoint you now. (laughs) I don't think I will answer all your questions. But let's get started. So if we were to compare the Bible to a cup of coffee, what do you think its flavor profile would be? <laughs> do, you know, do you even know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so I am somewhat admittedly of a, co- a bit of a coffee snob, and I don't like single origin coffee. Do you know what that is? <laughs> it's coffee that is sourced from exclusively one location, and it's usually named after that location, like Columbia or Kenya AA. Well, I don't, those aren't my favorite. I much prefer a blend of coffees that are sourced from multiple locations. But if we're comparing Bible to co- the Bible to coffee, of course, we would have to say the Bible is single origin and that the words are all breathed by the Spirit. But it is mediated through a diversity of voices. So those diverse voices give our cup of coffee its rich, complex flavor. Every voice uniquely contributes to the flavor profile. And if just one of those voices was missing, the whole flavor would change. So here's something for you to think about. What flavor does James add to the Bible? He's pretty different from Paul. In fact, in today's text, you might think he clashes with Paul. But we need both of their contributions to balance up that cup of coffee so it doesn't become too acidic or salty or something. Well, I think what James does so well, and maybe his major contribution, is that he takes a mature faith and he examines it, kind of like a jeweler would take a cut diamond, and he's going to turn it, he's going to look at it from every side, he's going to magnify it, he's going to shine a bright line on it, and he's going to notice and observe every facet. Well, that is what James does with faith. He gives us a picture of mature faith. I think that's why Job, Elijah, um, Abraham, and then the prophets appear in the book, because these are the stalwarts of the Old Testament. They're the people whose faith we want to emulate. So, So thus far in our study, James has appraised faith, and this is what we have discovered about it. Faith has a birth, right? We saw that in chapter 118. At one time, we did not have faith, but now we do, because God brought us forth by the word of truth. We've also observed that faith grows. We see this in 121. Now that it's been born, it like a baby, it's going to grow and develop. So as we humbly receive the word that is implanted in us, that's in James 121, we begin to grow. We've seen that faith joyfully endures trials and temptations. We saw that in 1-2. We saw in 1-5 that faith depends on God for wisdom to live in this trial-filled life. We learned in 1-26 that faith restrains its speech. And then last week in chapter 2, we saw that faith is impartial, and it's full of love and mercy. Well, today's text, 2-14-26, examines another facet of our faith. It actually zooms in on the nature of our faith. 
And it claims that a living faith works. It cannot do otherwise. So in our text for today, James actually anticipates and he answers an objection to what he has just claimed in verse 13. So last week, Pam concluded with verse 13, where James says, those who show no mercy will receive no mercy, but they can only expect judgment. So that lands on you kind of heavy, and I think it probably did James's readers as well. They probably thought, wow, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Aren't we justified by faith and not works? How can James now say we're going to be judged if we don't perform these works of mercy? Well, one consideration to, to consider before we start. So I just want to remind you that even though James' argument appears at times to contradict with Paul's, specifically in his letter to Galatians, what we need to recognize here is that the people reading these letters were just people like us people who tend to run off the road into one ditch or the other. So James and Paul are not in disagreement. It's just that in Galatians, Paul is addressing people in one ditch, and James is addressing people in another. Paul is addressing people in the ditch of, we must keep the law in order to be saved, while James is addressing people in the other ditch. I have faith. I believe the right things. I don't need to work. Well, both of these are false claims. And years later, when Paul would write to the Ephesians, his words there would help us reconcile this relationship between faith and works. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he he reminds us that salvation is a gift from God. It does not come from works or anything that we have have done. But then he goes on to say that we we do have this faith. We were born again and created to do good works because works and faith can't be separated. If we aren't working, it's not because God's purposes and salvation have failed. It's because our faith is ineffective. And as James would say, it's dead and it can't save you. So we want to avoid the ditches. On the one side, you may hear people say things like, oh, I prayed that prayer when I was a kid. It doesn't matter how I live. Or on the other side, you may hear things like, I'm a good person, or I just need to, to do better and you know, be better and do more. So whichever ditch you tend to f- tend toward, the words of James are for you today. A living faith works. It cannot do otherwise. But you should also see that in the outworking of your God-given, spirit-empowered faith, God delights to call you his friend. Let's look at the text. So in verse 14, we have an objection. This, and James is assuming this objection to his claim that a living faith works. And he summarizes the objection something like this. I have faith, I don't need works. Okay, that's the objection. Well, now with rhetoric, with a hypothetical illustration, with an appeal to logic, with negative and positive examples, and finally with a simile, James is going to debunk this objection and defend his claim that a living faith works. It cannot do otherwise. Well, his first rebuttal, so he's going to debunk the objection 
in all these ways. And in the first way, in verses 15 to 17, he uses two rhetorical questions along with a hypothetical illustration. So look with me, if you would, at verse 14. The rhetorical questions there are, what good is a faith without works? Can that kind of faith save you? And we all know this back from elementary school, but what does a rhetorical question do? It assumes the answer. So you are already, James is tipping his hat toward the answer to those questions, and you're already supposed to be thinking, huh, well, a faith without works is not faith at all. So no, it can't save me. Well, then he illustrates that faith without works in verse 16. And this is what it looks like. It looks like encountering a poorly clothed and a hungry sister. And instead of meeting her needs, you simply say, oh, I hope you get warm and filled. Be at peace, go. So after giving this illustration, James then repeats the rhetorical question, what good is that? The implication being, not good at all. For those who call themselves Christians, for those who were once at least metaphorically naked and hungry until God had mercy on them, for that kind of person to then turn and mercilessly turn away a needy sister when it is in her power to help her, her faith, such as it is, is worthless. And the only possible conclusion you can draw about that kind of faith is what James concludes in verse 17. It's dead. That's the first rebuttal. Next, James restates his claim in the form of an imaginary dialogue. So let's look at that in verse 18. Now remember, the first speaker is in verse 14, and he said, I have faith without works. Now in verse 18, we have a second speaker, and he responds, okay, you have faith, I have works. And then he issues a challenge. He just kind of throws down the gauntlet. You show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So through this imaginary dialogue, J James once again reasserts his claim. And what is the claim? A living faith works. It cannot do otherwise. And this time he's going to defend that claim by taking up the challenge. He's going to give examples of faith with and without works. This is his second rebuttal. It's in verses 19 and 20. And here we get a negative example. And you, you know what the negative example is. What is it? Faith without works looks like demons. So here, just as you saw in your homework this week, we should remember Jesus in the country of the Gerasenes, the account in Mark 5 and Luke 8, where he meets a man possessed by a legion of demons. And legion immediately recognizes Jesus, immediately know, he immediately knows who he is. I mean, Jesus' own disciples were still a little foggy on this point, but not the demons. They know exactly who Jesus is, and they can't help but fall down at Jesus' feet in terror, where they cry out with a loud voice, and this must have been chilling to hear. But they say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. I mean, these evil demons who had terrified and tormented so many people were now terrified themselves because they knew who Jesus was. And they knew his destiny was to judge and destroy them, 
while saving a people for himself. And yet, that is not enough. That belief, that knowledge won't save them from judgment. Not only have they rebelled against God, they have tormented his people, and there will be no mercy for them. Their faith is dead. That's the negative example. Well, in his third rebuttal, James completes the challenge. So he has shown what a dead faith, a faith without works, looks like. And now the other side of the challenge is to demonstrate how works reveal a living faith. And he does this with two positive examples. We get a man and a woman. So let's look at Abraham first. This starts in verse 21. Or is it 19? Verse 19. So Abraham first. In verse 19, James insists that Abraham was justified by works when he obediently offered up Isaac on the altar. Now, when Paul also uses Abraham as an illustration of being justified by faith in Galatians 6, he uses a different account in Abraham's life. He alludes back to Genesis 15, when God takes Abraham out on a clear night, shows him the starry sky, and says, so shall your offspring be. And in that moment, Abraham believed God, and his faith was counted as righteousness. He was justified by faith, so Paul is right. Now, James is appealing to a different account in in Abraham's life in order to demonstrate something else, that a living faith works. This account took place many years after Abraham first believed God, so we can see that Abraham's faith has grown. Years later, we find him obediently laying his son Isaac on the altar of sacrifice and raising a knife to kill him because God had asked Abraham to give him his son. And Abraham, still believing that God would keep his promise to make him a great nation through his son of promise, Isaac, obeyed. He raised the knife. God was testing Abraham's faith, and Abraham's faith stood the test. He steadfastly bore up under that trial and he showed his faith by his obedient work. So he is the counterexample to the demons. He believes, and his work of obedience proves it. Now, the language of 21, justified by works, can be a little troubling. But here, James is just declaring this unbreakable connection between faith and works. We just noted that in Ephesians, our salvation was for a purpose— In our new birth, God completely recreates us. He rewires us so that we begin to want to do the works that please him. Faith is transformative. It will have an effect in your life. You cannot separate faith from works. And if it does not work, then it's not faith. But Abraham had faith, and all those years later, he proved it because True faith works. It cannot do otherwise. But I also want to consider how Jesus speaks about the final judgment in Matthew 25. So in Matthew 25, it's a picture of the final judgment. All the nations are gathered before God's throne, and Jesus separates them into sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And then he welcomes the sheep into the kingdom. But do you remember what he says? Does he say, come, those of you who have faith? 
No, he actually says, come into the kingdom my father has prepared for you because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So on the judgment day, it is the works of God's people that prove they have faith. They can't get into heaven without good works because true faith works. It cannot do otherwise. But James is not suggesting that these sheep are ushered into the kingdom because they purchased God's favor with all their good works, as if God could be so cheaply bought. Our works outside of faith are nothing but filthy rags. But these sheep are there because God purchased them at great cost through the good work of his son. So God didn't pull back his own hand as he did Abraham's from striking his son. He was pleased to crush Jesus so we might be reborn, so that we might do the good works he planned for us to do before the foundation of the world. So Abraham showed his faith by his works. His was a living, working faith. There is no other kind. Well, Rahab is the second positive example of a living faith. In her, we see the good work of a woman who was likely on the margins of society. So not only is she Abraham's contrast in being a woman, she is his contrast by position. She was unmarried. Uh, She earned her keep through prostitution. So she is Abraham's contrast in many ways. But she, too, had a living faith. She believed in the God of Israel, and that belief led her to side with God and his people over her own countrymen. When she hid those spies and she sent them on their way, she performed a dangerous act of faith. But she believed God would be merciful to her, and he was so merciful, sparing not just her, but her entire family, and even giving her a seat in the genealogy of the one whose faithful work would atone for all her sins. All right, so now James has one last rebuttal to seal up his argument. And this last rebuttal is just a simple simile in verse 26. So he has already soundly refuted the claim that you can have faith without works. And he has defended his counterclaim that faith and works are inextricably linked. Okay, he has shown pretty effectively that a living faith works. (laughs) It cannot do otherwise. But his concluding word on the matter is this. The connection between faith and works is like the unbreakable connection between spirit and body. If you sever the soul from the body, you are dead. If you sever works from faith, your faith is dead. And a dead faith cannot save. So a living faith works. It cannot do otherwise. James has really driven home this message. So what's left for us to do, how do we respond to this? 
And I think we have to evaluate. That's why this text is in our Bibles. We can't escape evaluating our own lives. God wants you to read the text. He wants you to hold it up like a mirror and stare into it and observe what, it's, what you really look like. So we have to ask ourselves, does my work reveal that I have faith? Does my behavior make it obvious that God has brought me forth by the word of truth. Or the, the text also prompts us to ask, does the trajectory of my life, so think of Abraham here, does the trajectory of my life show an increasing submission to the implanted word within me? So we don't want to shy away from these questions. They're in there to encourage us to look in the mirror and there we know there are plenty of people within the community of Christians who don't have a living faith but they might hear this text and be encouraged to evaluate their hearts and turn to Jesus but neither should you throw yourself headlong into one of those ditches that we were talking about earlier Remember that the outworking of this new birth is the process of a lifetime. So like Abraham, our faith matures over the course of our lives, resulting in more and more faith-empowered good works. But from the moment of our new birth, we gradually begin to grow like a baby in fits and spurts and stops and starts so that our lives come slowly to mirror what God has already declared true about us. He says, you are righteous, and he will make it so. But just like children develop kind of unevenly across the various categories of maturation, so do God's spiritual children. So you may be great at showing mercy, but slow to perceive how the world and its values still have a stronghold in your heart. But both of these, mercy and holiness, are good works. You may even excel at governing your speech, but you may stumble when it comes to this area of partiality. You may live by conviction, and you offer up beautiful acts of devotion to the Lord, but perhaps you struggle with judging your brothers and sisters who don't share your convictions. Well, devotion, living by conviction, humility, and Christian charity, these are all good works. Anything we do as a result of our new nature, this this recreation that God has done in our hearts. He, our, this new, I, I'm trying to say it in 45 different ways <laughs> so you understand, this new orientation we have towards God, this new heart he has given us. So anything we do that reveals that we have been completely remade, those are good works. And there is, they reveal that our orientation is towards God who has become our friend. So these texts, this text is in our Bibles to help us evaluate our lives so that we can just kind of shore up areas of blindness so that our faith can continue to grow and prove itself effective. If you sense the Holy Spirit's just gently prodding you in a particular area, that is reason to be very grateful. He only does that for his children and for his friends. 
And he does it because he knows what's best for you. So evaluate your life according to the truth of this text. A living faith works. It cannot do otherwise. But we need to move beyond just evaluation and into application. So how, how do we apply this? How should we work? Well, for this and everything else, go to Jesus. When Jesus called people to be his disciples, he distinguished himself from the Pharisees who held their followers to the strictest standards and refused to lift a finger to help them. But when Jesus calls you to be his disciple, this is what he says in Matthew 11:28 through 30. He says, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus calls you to forsake all other masters and to follow him. And did you hear how he describes himself? He's gentle, he is lowly of heart, What better master is there to follow? And when you follow him and you obey him and you you, you do take his yoke upon you, what you'll find is that this work he has given you is easy and light. In the good works he gives you to do, you will find rest for your souls and you will find a friend, one who will help you do the work a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So go to Jesus. Like we sang earlier this morning, give him every part of you. Work and find rest for your souls. You know, Susanna Spurgeon was an invalid for much of her adult life. For years, she barely left her home. And you can imagine how lonely and discouraged she would be at times. Her husband was often away. He was tackling an aggressive preaching calendar. He offered oversight to various mercy ministries, outreaches. He even had his own Christian college. His health was often poor, and he would need to take leave of Susanna to go to the south of France to help recover from gout. I am sure she was often close to despairing that her life had no purpose. But you know what God did for her? He gave Susanna good work to do, even as she laid suffering on her bed. She began to send her husband's printed sermons and books to poor pastors all over the world. She knew they they could not afford resources like these, but that they desperately needed some ministerial training. So she stepped in and began this ministry called the Book Fund. She sent other other works by other theologians. Um... And she just kind of gradually would build the libraries up of these poor pastors. But she didn't stop there. She would hear back from these pastors who would just express gratitude for what she had done for them. But then she would hear stories about their lives and realize how poor they were. So she began to collect money and needed items for their families and would pass those along as well. Well, I want you to listen to how Spurgeon describes the effect of this good work on his wife's soul. 
He says, I gratefully adore the goodness of our Heavenly Father in directing my beloved wife to a work which has been to her fruitful in unutterable happiness. That it has cost her more pain than it would be fitting to reveal is most true. And here, think of the yoke and the burden. But that it has brought her boundless joy is equally certain. Our gracious Lord ministered to his suffering child in the most effectual manner when he graciously led her to minister to the necessities of his service. Then he goes on to say, Let every believer accept this, that for most human maladies, the best relief and antidote will be found in self-sacrificing work for the Lord Jesus. Does that sound like Jesus? Come to me, learn of me, take my yoke, and find rest for your souls. Well, for her part, Susanna had this to say about the work God gave her. She says, My days have been made so indescribably bright and happy by delightful duties connected with the work and its little arrangements that I seem to be living in an atmosphere of blessing and love and can truly say with the psalmist, My cup runneth over. So, a living faith works. And we could add here, I think, a living faith delights in working. It cannot do otherwise. The God who gave us faith, along with it, gave us good works to do. Good works that he intends for your joy and his glory. So walk in them. And through the foreordained years of your life, as your faith grows and expresses itself in many and varied good works, as with Abraham, and as with Susanna Spurgeon, and as with all of God's children, your soul will find its rest and joy in Jesus. And God will delight to call you his friend. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our Father, our Redeemer, and our friend. Such good work you have done and are doing in us through the work of Jesus, our dear Savior. Help us, we pray, to work as he worked and refresh our souls as we do these good works that you have set aside for us to do. I pray, Lord, that you would help us sing from our hearts as we sang this morning. Take my life, every part of it, and let me be always, only for thee. In Jesus' name, amen.